Hello and welcome back to the NovPod episode 5, hosted by Anesthesia on Air in association with the RCOA. I'm one of your co-hosts Owen Dorr, an anaesthetic registrar in Thames Valley, and with me as always is a fellow anaesthetic registrar, Duncan Kemp. What we're talking about today is the anaesthetic plan, and this is something that took me a little bit of time to get to grips with, because I didn't understand what would change, how it would change, and then why we decided to make those changes in the first place. So today we're going to lay down some foundations with some definitions, and then we're going to go through some case studies, followed by some questions that I have been sent in. In the bio, as ever, we'll put in some links to consolidate your further reading. But for now, enjoy the episode. Um, before we go any further, I think it would be good to just define what do we mean by anesthesia. So let's break that down. And without anesthesia sensation. We are the people that are able to provide a surgery without sensation. So that could either be generally, which is where you render the patient unconscious, they can't experience that unpleasant sensation, or that is regionally, where you can block off the section of nerves that correspond to where that surgery will be occurring. If that's the textbook version of what anaesthesia does, what does an anaesthetist do apart from provide snarky remarks to surgeons? Again, very simply, you could think of it as a medical practitioner who provides anaesthesia. In the modern meaning of the the term anaesthetist, we are definitely leaning more towards a perioperative practitioner of medicine. So this includes looking after patients from the preoperative period, taking them through their operation and anaesthesia and recovering from that anaesthesia and looking after them in the immediate post-anaesthetic and post-surgical setting in a safe manner. Quite a lot of responsibility. Anaesthesia is described as a science and an art form. That is because, and also weirdly, a recipe book. There's so many metaphors for anaesthesia, but I think, yeah, recipes, art and science are three main terms that we come across, aren't they? Rarely is there one definite correct way of doing things. There are some definite not correct way of doing things. It is about you compiling the different varieties of technique that you might employ for the same operation can benefit the people under your care and then working out how you then will get them from that place of safety where they're breathing themselves through the surgery and pain-free, vomit-free in recovery with two thumbs up and a thank you letter that all goes together to make you an anaesthetist. We and the surgeons are dragging a patient from a place of relative safety, particularly if it's elective procedure. Yeah, not dragging. Let's let's think of a nice... Sorry, not dragging. Drifting. Floating. We're floating the patient from a place of safety into a place of danger for their physiology and anatomy. And then we've got to get them back to that place of safety afterwards, haven't we? Yeah. So I think that is the challenge of anaesthesia. The margin of that will vary depending upon the nature of the surgery you're doing and the emergent nature of the situation. So if you've got an emergency general anaesthetic you need to deliver, you're already in a place of danger because the patient's safety margin has decreased significantly for their own physiology to compensate. And then you're pushing them over the edge potentially. So you need to think about what you're doing and how you're going to counteract that to make them as physiologically stable as possible. How do we achieve, briefly mentioned this in previous episodes, but general anaesthesia, 
we are giving them either an intravenous or an inhalational agent to establish hypnosis or agents to establish that triad of anesthesia, which is hypnosis, analgesia, and muscle relaxation. Whereas regional anesthesia, we're doing that for a specific body part, the analgesia and muscle relaxation. Particularly now with the rise of multimodal analgesia, you'll do GA techniques, but with a regional component for that analgesia. If you're not feeling confused by now, hopefully we'll confuse you by the end of the episode. Oh yes, don't worry. That leads on to why do we need to change or differ our anaesthetic technique? Why can't everyone just have the same three syringes, same recipe for everyone? Disclaimer, I don't just use three syringes for all my patients. You have a lot of factors that mean you have to adjust what you can deliver for a patient. Individualised plans are very important and that can be dependent on the surgery and the patient. So for the surgery, you've got the different lengths of surgery, where the surgery is happening, whether or not, for example, there's going to be insufflation of the stomach and the patient needs to be relaxed. Or if we're thinking about the patient factors, what's the simplest classification we know? A to E. A, what concerns might I have about the airway? Well, they may be unfasted. I may have to consider that they've got an aspiration risk and therefore they're going to need an intracheal tube in. B, breathing. They may have a recent chest infection. They may be of an ongoing chest infection. I may want to try and avoid adrenal anaesthetic for them. C, circulation. They may have ischemic heart disease where I might be risking them having heart attacks. There are lots of factors and patient factors that will help me adjust my anaesthetic. In terms of what you need to get out of this conversation, broad plans that you can put in place. And as you encounter more patients and more consultants and the learning points from that, you can then decide which parts of the plan need to be in place to ensure that patient's safety. I think as a novice, it can be very intimidating. You think, well, there's all these things to worry about. How can I actually make an anaesthetic plan? But ultimately, a general anaesthetic consists of the timeline, which is induction, maintenance, emergence. And then it consists of what your plan is for the patient factors and surgical factors. It can be very confusing. Lots of different surgeries will require very different things from the anaesthetic side, as you've just touched on, as will different patients with their comorbidities. The key thing as a novice is to pick up on this as you go through your lists and you will create your own recipes depending on what you've seen and how different consultants approach different problems. In the overall anaesthetic plan, we're thinking about drugs, equipment, monitoring, personnel for each step, aren't we? Mm. So the drugs, like we talked about, induction drugs, maintenance drugs, any other special drugs, drugs for use in emergence, then equipment, particularly airway equipment, And then that spills over into monitoring equipment for IV access, equipment for monitoring. Do we need any special monitoring? Are these patients particularly unstable where we need an arterial line or do we need to repeat blood sampling? And then any other weird and wonderful stuff for specialist surgery. Part of this is how you are going to maintain the patient's homeostasis. What you're monitoring and the reason to monitor it is whether or not you would change it. I can refer you to the Anesthetic Association monitoring guidelines then we move on to our personnel as well so obviously at induction we want an odp around and an emergence do we need anyone else around for induction maintenance or emergence a key question for what's my anesthetic plan aside from what surgery are we doing is what airway am i going to use and how is the patient going to breathe 
Ultimately, this boils down to supraglottic airway and spontaneous ventilation or intermittent positive pressure ventilation, an endotracheal airway and intermittent positive pressure ventilation, or a rapid sequence induction in order to establish endotracheal intubation. There's a lot of words there, a lot of acronyms. What do we mean by the term supraglottic airway? Who invented it and why? This sounds like it's a job of Owen's history corner. When you induce a state of unconsciousness, their tongue roll back, they lose the airway protective reflex. So we know that we need to help them out with that. In the 80s, there were two main types of ways to maintain people's airways. So people used to either hold a face mask and perform a jaw lift to get the tongue out of the way and have people self-ventilating, or they used to intubate them. Dr. Brain, or Prof. Brain, came up with a device in the 80s where he was able to using a flexible tube, stick a mask that sat over the glottis. That's why it's called supraglottis. And then that was done without muscle relaxant, less invasive than an endotracheal tube, the patient could then self-ventilate on and thus revolutionised both anaesthetics and the knock-on effect in terms of intensive care and paramedic. And making all of our hand strength much weaker than the generation before us. Yes, yeah, the international rock climbers, all of them. Exactly. And now... Yeah. Crush an apple in one hand. Yes, exactly. Now we can barely open doors. Exactly. That's the general anaesthetic LMA. When would we not want to use one of those, Duncan? Again, we go back to those key decision makers for us, which are anaesthesia factors, patient factors and surgical factors. An LMA is not technically a fully secured airway there is still a risk of aspiration. Any patient with high aspiration risk, in particular, severe gastroesophageal reflux disease, not starved, full stomach, so trauma patients, bowel obstruction patients, with a risk of aspiration, particularly induction, LMA is pretty much out of the question. Okay, so at this point, you need to think about a definitive airway, secure airway, and that's an endotracheal tube, ultimately. So then that leads to our second branch, the endotracheal tube and IPPV, intermittent positive pressure ventilation. So we are taking over not only their airway, but taking over their ventilation as well. What will push you surgically to do an endotracheal tube over an LMA? Any surgery where they are insufflating the abdomen for laparoscopic access, you will need to put an endotracheal tube in. Yeah. So we've talked about endotracheal tube from a patient perspective and then surgical there's a couple of things I'll add on to your patient factors, not just about aspiration. Mm. It's whether or not, for example, if they're going to go to intensive care post, mm. if we know that they're going to be difficult to ventilate, and that can be if they've got low lung compliance or if they've got low chest wall compliance, for example, morbidly obese, then we might consider an endotracheal tube as well. Yeah, see, I just focused on A for airway. I'm a very simple man. Oh, simple yeah. man. I forgot about breathe, B for breathing. Now, I mentioned RSI. That's a bunch of letters. What does yeah, that mean? Yeah, we love our acronyms. Rapid sequence induction. Now, not going to go into the exact science of an RSI and the specifics, but... That's uni- above our pay grade. Exactly, well above our pay grade. RSI is ultimately an emergent need to establish an airway for multiple reasons. RSI in theatres will tend to be due to, again, this high risk of aspiration. The technique is different from an elective endotracheal intubation. The other places where RSIs often happen are outside of theatres, in A&E recess, in ITU. Again, a variety of reasons for these. Ultimately, the patients undergoing RSIs are at high risk of aspiration and rapid desaturation. 
those are the two key things I think would make me RSI someone. Anything else? I think anywhere apart from anaesthetics, I need to think about why I'm not RSIing them. We have talked about if we're doing a general anaesthetic that we could face mask these people, but we're not going to because our hands are now too tired. We could either LMA and have them self-ventilating or we can ventilate for them. Or we can have an endotracheal tube where we place a tube that sits in the trachea and we can put that in quickly using a RSI. So that is a bit about the general anaesthetic side. But we mentioned before we started that there was another way that we could perform these. Why would you use regional anaesthetic? So ultimately, we've talked about general anaesthesia. When would I use regional anaesthetic? Again, this goes back to that talk about patient anaesthesia and surgical factors. There are certain demographics of patients with certain disease processes where a general anaesthetic will have a significant impact on their morbidity and mortality. And it may not actually be in their best interests if it can be avoided. Sometimes you cannot avoid a general anaesthetic from the nature of the surgery. But if it can be, then you are the advocate for the patient. So you should be advising them on how best to get it done. And sometimes that is a regional technique. Certain surgeries, particularly on individual limbs, for example, a regional technique may facilitate the surgery more than well enough, but also, again, avoid those risks of a general anaesthetic with the patient or allow the patient to go home quicker. There's lots of different regional techniques that can be used to facilitate a patient who's either conscious or we can use regional with GA. So we use regional as their analgesia option. So they can have local anaesthetic just around the area and that does very peripheral nerves or they can have more of a central block where we inject into where the spinal nerves are essentially. Moving on to our next bit, we're just going to go through some case studies maybe just to show you how Duncan and I think about these things as we discuss them over coffee, what we would do as our plan. So Duncan, fairly simple one to come through. It's a 20-year-old guy by the name of has come in with a pilonidal abscess. Okay, bum abscess. Bum abscess. So he has to have it removed via surgery. Can you talk me through your plan for a general anaesthetic for... So let's go back to our first principles. We've got patient factors and we've got surgical factors in this. Patient factors, it's a young, fit and well, starved patient, minimal aspiration risk, if any. You've got surgery, you've got a relatively short, albeit intensely stimulating procedure. Mm. It's minimally invasive. It can be done as a day case. Depending on the smell, it can be stimulating for us all. Adding all that up, it's a quick procedure. A general anaesthetic would be the quickest technique for this. It's a body surface procedure. It's not going to impact on his risk of aspiration. All this adds up to the fact that we're going to deliver a general anaesthetic. We can use a supraglottic airway device to avoid the risks of intubation. There's no reason to intubate this patient that I can justify. We can keep them spontaneously ventilating because it is a quick procedure and they are young, fit and healthy. So that's my plan. Brilliant. It's making sure you've thought about the other bits of the homeostasis and so making sure you thought about whether or not you need blood sugar monitoring, whether or not temperature needs to be monitored, what the post-op nausea vomiting analgesia does. I think I've got a word of wisdom to say. 
mm-hmm. which is for pyelonidal abscess, you don't need to examine the pyelonidal abscess. You just need to examine the airway. Right, Duncan, um, do you have a case study for me, mate? Yeah, let's go from bum abscess, one classic C-pod case, mm. to another classic C-pod Ooh, case. We've got 32, right iliac frost of pain. He's got appendicitis. Hooray. What are we going to do for I'm thinking he's still fit and healthy, so I can keep yep. my normal drugs. I, however, need to think about the risk of aspiration, and also he's going to have intra-abdominal surgery, so we're going to need an intratracheal tube, but that risk of aspiration on a stomach that's been in pain, and I'm going to say he's unstarved as well, and they want to do it before then, I would then do a rapid sequence induction, which I'd modify, because I'd use different agents. I'd use propofol and rocuronium with fentanyl rather than the classic RSI. I would consent him for cricoid pressure. I'd make sure that I had, for induction, that he was attached to monitoring, SATS Pro, blood pressure cuff, and ECG leads, have a good IV access that was working well, and was attached to the bag of fluids, that the ODP knew about cricoid pressure. Very exam answer-esque. Uh, well, it was very exam answer-esque, sorry. Yeah. Yes, boss, sorry, boss. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, we've talked about one case, which is an LMA, yeah. with some spontaneous ventilation. Then we've jumped right to the other end of the spectrum. Well, not quite to the other end of the spectrum, but we've talked about an RSI. So what case would land us in the middle, where we'd need a tube, but we wouldn't need an RSI? Mm. Why don't we, um, if someone was morbidly obese, okay, I would then consider what I said earlier about being concerned about their ventilation. I'd be concerned that the LMA wouldn't reach adequate pressures. So let's say they've, they've got a BMI of 45. I'm then thinking, will a... LMA sufficiently allow me to control their ventilation and the answer to that would be no and so I would tube that person cool so that's a a patient specific Mm. factor what about a surgical factor which would make you intubate someone but not do an RSI if they ask me nicely usually very good yeah Yeah, Uh, always yeah. yeah, yeah. always helps tube solves everything tube solves everything um, if they were doing other intra-abdominal surgery, but this was elective, so let's say they were doing like a laparoscopic fertility test. Or something a bit more common, a laparoscopic cholecystectomy. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. Sorry. I'll just me and my fertility <laughs> test. Okay. Yeah, lap coli. Okay, yeah. Right, and to round off today's episode, we have some questions that have been sent in by some novices who have previewed the episode, and then we have some links from the outro. Before we get onto that, we have a clarification to be had in History Corner. Dr. Brain co-created the LMA with the late, great Dr. Chandy V, Dr. Chandy Vagassi, who worked at the Royal London and at the Royal Berkshire and together they tested this about 7,000 patients before commercialising it. And it came around the time that propofol became a more popular anaesthetic drug for its suppression of laryngeal reflexes along with other features. And there is a great video of Dr. Chandy V intubating himself awake that is on YouTube that I'll provide on my Twitter for further reference. Moving on to the questions. What type of superglottic 
device do you use? Well, I use a second generation superglossic airway and that could be, for example, an eye gel with a suction port. If that then fails in terms of it was leaking, I would then switch to a first generation. Drugs, how much do you give? Well, that's for your novice period to work out. I think it should be noted that if you give a big bolus of drugs, you could suppress the respiratory drive and this will lead to you having to ventilate the patient until the patient recovers their own drive back. Next question, could you clarify when you bag with an RSI patient? Well, this is a bit more of a nuanced area. You're weighing up the aspiration risk versus the risk of hypoxia. Now, I joked when I said that I didn't bag because my hands were tired. I'm thinking about the amount of air that could go into their stomach, increase their stomach pressure, causing aspiration, versus how bad, for example, their type 1 respiratory failure would be. So there may be a patient who is a high aspiration risk who you wouldn't routinely bag, or there may be a patient who's ITU type 1 respiratory failure that will desaturate within 10 seconds if you don't provide positive pressure ventilation, if you muscle relax them. And part of that nuance is also within the decision to do an LMA versus doing a ET tube. Some consultants will do a lap coli on a eye gel and it's for you to ask what are you doing and why are you doing it and would you be happy for me to do it when I pass my novice period and that should then give you the reflection as to whether or not you want to bring that practice into your anaesthetic plan as you start to build them. Moving on to the links, we have the e-learning for health modules, principles of anaesthesia and the basic techniques as things to go and look up after this episode. We also have the evolution of the airway adjuncts as a article that's being listed and we will see you in the next episode, which is episode six, part one of us going through some of the anaesthetic drugs with our friend and colleague Rahul, who will be joining us. So bye for now.